On first inspecting Adam, the devil entered his lips. He's all hollow, the devil giggles. He knows his job will be easy. A human just one long desperation to be filled. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio, and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with poet Kaveh Akbar, whose sophomore poetry collection, Pilgrim Bell, empties the self of the self, of one's nation or nations, of one's family, of one's knowledge, leaving only one's hollowed and hallowed body. Welcome to The Right Question. Thank you so much, Lauren. I'm honored to be here. So I would like to begin our conversation by pointing out a few words of another poet. As an introduction to one of the sections of Pilgrim Bell, you quote Anne Carson, who wrote, A pilgrim is a person who is up to something. So my question to you, Kaveh, is what are you up to? What have you been up to? (laughs) <laughs> that's a beautiful that's a beautiful introduction i love that definition of a pilgrim too in that same book plain water she also says a pilgrim is someone whose recipes are simple which i think is another excellent definition of a pilgrim i am currently in paris france with my spouse um what i am up to right now what we've been up to today is reading, just reading and wandering around. And we ate a baguette, a full baguette between the two of us, which has sort of become our thing now. You know, I'm loathe to learn the uh, health implications of that, especially because we often eat it with just some butter or some oil. So, but yeah, that's, that's sort of what we've been up to, just reading a lot and wandering a lot. And then talking to you, which I'm very excited about. I'm so excited about it too. That sounds so decadent and romantic. Yeah, it's it's really obnoxious, frankly. We shouldn't be allowed to do it. Someone should, someone should stop us. I want to talk to you about the relationship between your two collections. What is the relationship between your first, Calling a Wolf a Wolf, and Pilgrim Bell? How did their writing processes differ? How do you see them as they exist next to one another? I, I kind of started thinking about them in terms of like actual personhood relationships. Like, are they siblings? Are they a parent and a child? Are they friends? Are they lovers? Are they coworkers? I was really curious to know how you see them together. Oh, that's fascinating. I haven't actually ever thought about them like that. I don't think I can answer the relationship between them off the top of my head. I'd want to think about it. But what I can say is that my first book is, it's called Calling a Wolf a Wolf. And it was very much a recovery narrative. It was my addiction recovery narrative. And I wrote it during a time when I was sort of strapped to the masthead of very early recovery, you know, and I was just kind of living in poems because living in my life had become untenable. So the poems were just a place where I could put myself for an hour, two hours, four hours at a time and not worry about accidentally killing myself. I mean, frankly, and so the poems were very frantic, very desperate, there was a lot of supersaturation of imagery and supersaturation of sound. Um, this new book, Pilgrim Bell, has had a little bit more time to grow with me. 
has had a little bit more time to mature with me. I just celebrated eight years of sobriety a few days ago, actually. And and so, you know, I'm a little bit, the, the partition between me and an early preventable death is a few millimeters thicker than it was when I wrote that first book. And that's allowed me to catch my breath a little bit and to make shapes out of silence a little bit more. And maybe most importantly, or most dramatically in the poems themselves, look out a little bit beyond my own sort of all-encompassing psychopathologies to look out a little bit beyond myself. Do you feel like sober is now an identity for you? Is your sobriety sort of inextricable from your writing practice? Mm, Yeah, that's a beautiful question. I mean, sobriety is horizontal in my understanding of it. Um, Like the horizon, you march towards it forever and you never fully arrive, right? Like I'll never not be an addict. You know, my understanding of addiction is such that I will never not think like an addict. The algorithms of my brain are just wired so that any available pleasure button I will break. You know, there's not a high on earth that I haven't made myself sick off of, right? And so the bedrock of sobriety and the bedrock of recovery, maybe more appropriately, the bedrock of recovery is what I've built my entire living upon, right? You know, without that, none of the, none of those others, I'm not talking about a book. I'm not talking about a spouse. I'm not talking to you. Um, I'm just lurching from crisis to crisis. So yeah, I mean, it's very much that recovery is very much the bedrock upon which every other good thing in my life is predicated. In Pilgrim Belt, there's a poem called Seven Years Sober. And in that poem, you paraphrase Gertrude Stein, correct? You write, no repetition, only insistence. And this idea of repetition, even the negation of, like that that phrase seems to be sort of implying, is so much a part of Pilgrim Belt in my reading of it. It's kind of one of the ways that I see the collection being something like a bell itself, the way that its themes and threads repeat or chime. There's a series of poems called Pilgrim Bell. You've written in forms that repeat. You wrote in one poem that melody requires repetition. And so I'm wondering, can you explain this this Stein quote um, to me or this paraphrased sentiment, how you read Stein's use of it and how you use it in the book? Yeah, I mean, that's such a beautiful and perceptive question. And um, I'm so grateful to you for your generous reading. I think all the time about how time is our most irreplenishable resource and the idea of people spending a not insignificant amount of time just reading some words that I've written down on a page is, it's just such a profound gift. I'll never, I don't think I'll ever quite get over it. You know, the idea that yeah. I, anyways, I, I am grateful, sincerely. Yeah, that, that iterative nature of lyric poetry is really attractive to me. The idea that with each iteration of a thought, the thought is modified, right? With each, uh, because I'm a new person as I encounter it each new time, because, you know, just like if I say the word silver, 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 you know, by the fifth or sixth iteration, it's stopped being a color, it's not being a a hue, and it's just kind of become these weird sounds, right? I mean, it just takes a couple iterations, right? And I think that when you're dealing with a technology 
with as long and violent a history as the English language, that kind of pulling it apart, that kind of, the poet Emnor Bessa Philip uses the word decontamination, but that kind of decontamination becomes really, really necessary and urgent if you want to try to also use that endlessly violent and corrosive technology to apprehend something like the divine or to apprehend something like God or justice or love or death or, you know, any of these big things, right? The best technology that I, Kava Akbar, have to consider them is the English language, is um, specifically poetry written in the English language, right? And so in order to make that language able to accommodate those bigger thinkings, I first have to sort of pull the language apart and turn it against itself a little bit. That's my understanding of it anyways. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm, It does. I want to go back to what you said about these iterations or these repetitions um, becoming, I'm going to say merely, I don't know if you said merely, but sound. I like this idea of sound. It reminds me of your poem, My Father's Accent. Will you read My Father's Accent? Yeah, absolutely. My father's accent. A boy prettier than me who loved me because my vocabulary and because my orange pills once asked me to translate my father's English. This poem wants me to translate it too. Idiot poem, idiot hands for writing it. An accent isn't sound. Only those to whom it seems alien would flatten an accent to sound. My poem grew up here, sitting in this American chair, staring out at this lifeless American snow, black grass dying up out of this snow, through a rabbit's long tracks, like a ghost sitting upright, saying, oh, but even that's a lie. No tracks, just black grass, blue snow. I can't write this without trying to make it beautiful. Submission, resistance, surrender. On first inspecting Adam, the devil entered his lips. Watch, the devil enters Adam's lips, crawls through his throat, through his guts to finally emerge out his anus. He's all hollow, the devil giggles. He knows his job will be easy. A human just one long desperation to be filled. My father's white undershirt peeking out through his collar. My father's hand slicing skin, gristle from a chicken carcass I hold still against the cutting board. Sometimes he bites his bottom lip to suppress what must be rage. It must be rage because it makes no sound. My vast terror at what I can't hear, at my ignorance, is untranslatable. My father speaks in perfect English. So many of these poems in Pilgrim Bell speak to these sort of empty or hollow spaces, often empty rooms even, and many speak to the mouth in particular, to lips, and as you've been saying, to language. Can you speak to these ideas, this notion of filling hollow or empty space, the way that the mouth specifically seems to facilitate that filling? Yeah, I mean, that's another beautiful perceptive question. I think that notion, that story from the poem about 
the devil inspecting Adam and passing through him and emerging and saying, oh, he's all hollow. My job will be easy. You know, all I have to do is show him stuff with which to fill himself and, you know, and it'll be so easy to tempt him, right? That's been the story of my life. You know, we, whether it has been narcotics or even after that, you know, praise, food, people, money, adulation, you know, the story of my life has just been lurching from this thing that I feel like might fill me to the next, right? The same organ that I use to, that I use to tell my lover that I love them is the organ that I use to order a potent neurotoxin that will kill me. And that same organ is the organ that I could use to declare my loyalty to you know, any number of murderous ideologies, you know, in the air at the moment, right? Um, or to contribute to the forces that are taking us to the brink of irreversible ecological collapse. You know what I'm saying? Like, it all comes in through the mouth. What impulses are you embracing when you write, and perhaps more specifically when you wrote Pilgrim Bell? And what impulses were you or are you stifling? The big thing for me with Pilgrim Bell was to resist certainty in all forms um, and to try to sit in unknowing and uncertainty without desperately groping to resolve it. There's a Sufi prayer that goes, Lord, increase my bewilderment. And that's the prayer in its entirety. And and I think that 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 is what I was courting, right? To be able to let the language guide me into the poem and not let ideas guide the language, right? If I wanted to let ideas guide the language, I could write brochures. I don't need the technology of lyric poetry for that. What lyric poetry affords me is to see where the language can go out ahead of me. So stifling the impulse to control, stifling the impulse to impose my knowing and my ego onto the poem's own organic movement. Let's talk about that because there were a number of places in the collection where it felt like you're writing to spite your knowledge or you're, you're trying to speak against the idea of acquiring knowledge, your specific knowledge, and which I did read as kind of like this, like, I don't want to put my intelligence on the page. And so I think you kind of just spoke to that impulse to insist that you you are or your poetry is more than what you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, I'm just skeptical of my knowing, right? I mean, my self-will got me to my rock bottom, right? My my unchecked ego got me to my rock bottom. And then when I surrendered to the fact that I was powerless over my self-will, better stuff started happening. I stopped dying. And so... Good things happen to me when I check my ego and when I impose a necessary skepticism upon my self-will, which tends to not actually want what is best for me. And I think that that's true in the poems. I mean, again, if I believe that the poems are a devotional technology, if I believe that this is a spiritual technology, um, then I have to get out of their way. If you're just joining us, you're listening to a conversation with poet Kaveh Akbar, author of Pilgrim Bell. 
I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. Our full conversation can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook. I'm hoping that you'll read one of the poems in Pilgrim Bell that conjures your mother. Will you read Cotton Candy? Yeah. This poem begins with an epigraph by the poet John Donne, great metaphysical poet, metaphysical British poet John Donne. To go to heaven, we make heaven come to us. Cotton Candy. Yes, John, I tried that. The results were underwhelming. My liver practically leapt out of my body. My mother wept nightly for eight years. My living curled its hands around her throat, not choking exactly, but like the squeeze of an outgrown collar. In Iran, she spoke my father's language with such a thick accent. His family laughed when she talked, but still she talked and she listened, diligent as a holy sword. The reward for goodness is just more goodness, and sometimes not even that. Once I allowed a beetle to scuttle back under my fridge. In a week, she became a thousand beetles. I packed my bags and left for good. The apartment was hers. A mother is someone who is looking to improve. Mine was a climbable trellis. Her nation flag was a leather apron fastened to a spear. If I were a mother, I'd lose my child at the fair and go on riding rides, zooming through the air, singing, which way I fly is heaven. I myself am heaven. But my mother hated rides. She was happy to buy me cotton candy and sit on a bench smiling. She'd watch me eat the whole bag. That poem specifically reminded me of um, a poem that is in the book, but it was first published by the Academy of American Poets, Ultrasound. And I found your explanation for that poem just as interesting as the poem itself, that you set out to write a poem about your mother and accidentally began the poem with an image of your father. Can you talk about those impulses, maybe? Yeah, yeah. When I wrote my, after I published my first book, uh, my mom reads my poetry, my dad doesn't. And when I wrote my first book, my mom read it and she said, why are there all these poems about your dad in here and no poems about me? And so, <laughs> and so I set out to write a poem for her, right? Like I was like, I'll write my mom a poem and then she'll be happy, you know? Um, so I wrote that poem that you're alluding to ultrasound, which was me being a dutiful, good son. But then, as you said, that poem begins with an image of my father. Uh, so I kind of bungled that. Yeah. I mean, so much of this book is orbiting my trying to apprehend the divine, my trying to apprehend God. And when I say God, I just mean, all of this, I'm flailing my arms in the air right now. And when I was a kid, the best sort of like analog for understanding God that I had was my parents, right? My parents were sort of all powerful. You know, I literally thought that my dad's umbrella controlled the rain. You know, when he grabbed his umbrella, it was raining outside, right? And so I was like, oh, he grabs his umbrella and makes it rain. You know, I mean, it, that's logical in the mind of a kid. Yeah, and there's a line in the book. Do you remember that, like, verbatim? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, it's in Reza's restaurant. It's, uh, you know, my father whose umbrella made it rain or something like, I, yeah. Such a beautiful line. It's true. I mean, it's, it, that's, you know, I, I, I'm not 
don't tend to go through the book and be like, okay, this is literally true. This is metaphorically true, you know, but that, that really was, you know, I really did think that his umbrella made it rain. You know, I mean, that, that was how powerful, powerful my parents seemed to me, um, in my own sort of, in my own inner cosmologies, they were that for me. And then as I got older, I began to be able to distinguish between, um, where their power ended and where sort of divine powers began. But I still have those frictions and overlaps and braids in my head, right? I think that you always kind of, I don't know, I, I don't mean to speak in the second person or speak prescriptively, but certainly I will always have some of those intermingling, some of those confluences. Yeah, I think so too. And how could you not? I feel like all children maybe have those same braids, as you call them, with their parents um, until they don't, right? Yeah. Like there's probably a moment or moments when, when that braid becomes untangled. But yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. I mean, there's a moment where your mother had your mother had two complete skeletons inside of her, right? Your mother had two beating hearts inside of her. Like it just, just because it is common doesn't make it not a miracle. Just because we have a name for it doesn't make it, you know, it's just, it's nuts. It's nuts. Like, I mean, I think about this stuff sometimes, like, like there's a star that lives 93 million miles away and it sends its light to earth and we turn and plants turn that light into sugar. Right. And all life on earth is predicated on the fact that, you know, these green things can turn light from a star that lives 93 million miles away into sugar. Like this stuff, you know, I, I can trip out on this stuff for, you know, forever. I'd like to talk about the cover of Pilgrim Bell. It features a painting by Hannah Bagshaw, and it's such a striking image. It's so beautiful. How did it come to be your collection's cover? How has it perhaps changed your relationship to the poems in the collection themselves? Yeah, I'm so glad that you asked about um, Hannah's cover. It's so incredible. Uh, she was an artist that I admired prior to the book. And I reached out to her to ask if um, I could use a certain painting for the cover. And that painting was already in a private collection. And so she said that if I sent her my manuscript, she would recreate a painting like that painting for the cover, you know, after reading the collection. And she, um, so she read the collection, you know, in an earlier state, obviously, and painted this painting um, specifically for the collection and it's so striking to me every time i look at it it's like i just drank four cups of coffee it's just so exciting to me it's so dynamic there's so much weight in it and and it's dynamic and energetic but there's also chastity right and i think that that's such an interesting energy right the the yoking of like real dynamism to chastity um, I think that that's a tension that is everywhere apparent in the book that I could have never named without Hannah sort of articulating it for me in the vocabulary of this painting, right? And it's just so, it's so brilliant. It's, you know, it's it's a little bit ridiculous to say my favorite part of the book is like the one part that I had nothing to do with, right? But it's 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 just so, so, so striking to me. It's so striking. The phrase that I use to describe your collection kind of speaks to this um, sort of dualism that you just spoke to. And I, the, the phrase that I used was uh, rambunctious stillness. I feel like there's something so energetic about Pilgrim Bell and yet so still and calm. And I feel like you're right. That cover sort of represents that same, that same relationship. Yeah, that's beautiful. I love rambunctious stillness. That's beautiful. 
Kaveh, how do you manage after what I'm going to describe as kind of the explosively positive reception of your first book? How do you manage expectations, your own expectations, other people's expectations? What is your relationship to what I am going to call hope? Hope. Wow. I have control over the poems. You know, I have control over having written. I don't have control over anyone's reaction to the poems. And so I don't, I guess I don't think about hope as an external thing in that way. I mean, I, I, that's not true. I hope that the poems will be useful in the lives of people that I'll never meet. I do hope that. Uh, I hope that they will find their way into the lives of people that I would never have a way of encountering otherwise. And I hope that they will illuminate something for them about their living or be useful in some way. Um, maybe they'll hold open a door that they need held open. I mean, literally, or like, you know, bat a mosquito off their arm or something, you know, but I hope that the book will be useful. You know, I do hope that for the book. Um, but in terms of, you know, people thinking the poems are good or bad or thinking that I'm good or bad, you know, I don't have control over that. Um, and frankly, it's none of my business what other people think of me. It is my business what Paige thinks of me, right? And what my nieces think of me and what my students think of me. And I try to manage those relationships as best as I can. But in terms of people that I'll never meet, you know, I, you're right. The response to my first book was overwhelming and kind of vertiginous for someone who was really still fresh in recovery. And then, um, you know, you can imagine the whiplash of going from low bottom addiction into a poetry world and having a book out and, you know, stomping around and, and people, you know, saying really wonderful and nice things to me. You can imagine the sort of imposter syndrome and you can imagine how much I was just waiting for someone to kick down the door and drag me out, you know, of that life. And in a way that's still true, but, you know, again, I don't have control over that. Um, what I do have control over is having written. And so I try to put as much of my hope into that as I can. This lush poetry ecosystem, tell me about Who's a part of it right now? What books are you reading? What books are you recommending right now? Yeah, uh, I'm actually reading a lot of fiction right now. I'm reading like a novel every day or two. I just sort of have an ivy drip of fiction going. I thought Patricia Lockwood's new novel was incredible. Uh, I think that it's really, really, really remarkable what she does. She's it's Well, I don't want to say too much about it, but I, I think it's just such a such a masterpiece um i'm really obsessed with the spanish writer named andres barba i don't i'm not sure that i'm even pronouncing his name right a-n-d-r-e-s-b-a-r-b-a -A -A. um he has a he has a big book called the luminous republic uh or maybe a luminous republic and another one called such small hands i recommend starting with those two some classics like uh swan's way crime and punishment turgenev's first love yeah, so that's that's some of what has been spinning in my head. Kaveh, will you read an oversight on page 42? Yeah, an oversight. I murdered my least defensible vices, stacking them like bodies in the surf. An armada of nurses rode in to cherish the dead. Try harder, little moons, they said to the corpses. 
Winter followed winter. Horses coughed blood into the sand. Some pain stays so long its absence becomes a different pain. They say it's not faith if you can hold it in your hands, but I suspect the opposite may be true. That real faith passes first through the body, like an arrow. Consider our whole galaxy staked in place by a single star. I fear we haven't said nearly enough about that. Kabe, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much, Lauren. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Peter Hogue. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. Our recording engineer is Bethann Ostein. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.